Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Create Your Life series, where we help you maximize your potential and results in the area of personal development, entrepreneurship, and travel. And I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown. Create your life. Create ta propre vie. Create your life. Create Your Life family, thanks for tuning in to this episode. Before we get started, I wanted to share some exciting information from our sponsor. We only pick people and companies that we think are awesome to bring onto the show, so please support them. As a podcaster, I've spent hours and hours editing, doing show graphics, and much more, and I finally got fed up with losing all of my free time to post-production activities. So I decided to do something about it. And if you are a fellow busy podcaster who would like to just record and have someone else do the dirty work of graphic creation, tagging and uploading your show to your server and in-depth SEO generating show notes, go to podcastlaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Beautiful people, this is the Create Your Life series. I'm your host, Kevin Wyatt Brown, and today we have another amazing guest that actually had the opportunity to make her acquaintance in Philadelphia at the Podcast Movement Conference. We had no idea who each other was, but by the time the conference was over, or the time she had to leave, we were like brother and sister, playing around and just chatting and talking about dreams and things like that. And I'm talking about this young lady who is an award-winning author, transformational speaker, hope restoring coach and media personality who is committed to redefining the term wealth for our generation. As the founder of Redefining Wealth, the Earn More Money movement for women, she has built a thriving community of high achieving women committed to creating a powerful life vision in their careers, home, health, and personal finances. Her podcast, the Redefining Wealth podcast, which takes a deeper dive into her radio segment content, launched in 2017 with overwhelming success. And her popular podcast was recently featured on Forbes.com as one of 15 inspiring podcasts for professionals of every stripe. Each year, she electrifies tens of thousands as a sought-after speaker from colleges to churches and conferences nationally and internationally, and has shared the stage with renowned speakers such as Lisa Nichols, T.D. Jakes, and Maya Angelou. And she has taken the time out to be with us here today, and she has a speaking engagement later. Create Your Life family, I'm talking about none other than Miss Patrice C. Washington. Patrice, please say hello to the Create Your Life family. Hey, hello, Create Your Life family. Thank you for having me here, Kevin. I'm so happy to have you and humble, you know, that you took the time on such a busy day like today to be with us. Patrice, I want to jump right in. You are known as America's money maven. What got you interested in finance? I was always interested in money. I think growing up in the hood, you kind of want to just figure out what that's about. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles in an area called Lemur Park. And to be honest, Kevin, I grew up seeing 
so much stuff that a little kid shouldn't see from drive-by shootings, drug deals going down, prostitution, carjackings, you name it in the 80s, it was going down in my neighborhood. And the only thing that I remember people saying is you got to get good grades, go to college so you can make a lot of money and get out. And so Mm -hmm. I grew up believing that. And of course, in that whole making money, I also wanted to know what I was supposed to do with the money after I made it. Because that's the part I think a lot of us leave out. So I became fascinated with personal finance kind of young. I started Mm -hmm. creating businesses when I was like third, fourth grade. I was the school candy lady. I was doing anything, selling bedazzled bandanas, always finding a way to make money. But then I wanted to know, honestly, what are you supposed to do with it after? So I became really passionate about personal finance education. But I tell people all the time that becoming America's money maven was not because I was so brilliant. It took losing everything in the recession and starting over from scratch to become compassionate. Because when I left USC, the University of Southern California, I started a real estate and mortgage brokerage during my senior year in college. And with that, again, because I've been used to starting businesses as a kid, my first official business did seven figures by the time I was 25 years old. But when the recession hit, I was so heavily invested in just real estate because that was the thing I always heard about that when that bubble burst, I lost everything. And going from seven figures to food stamps and scraping of change and trying to find change, loose change in purses and applying for, you know, an EBT card and begging people not to turn the lights off because my daughter's milk might spoil. Like all these series of things are why I actually am the money maven. Because Mm -hmm. of the compassion I now have for people who go through such rough patches, I just want to restore hope. And that's what Becoming America's Money Maven was about. It's someone who not is on a mountaintop telling you what you did wrong or you could have, should have, would have. It's someone saying, you know what? I thought that I was going to live out this sequence the way they said it should go. And when that didn't happen for me... I realized that there's some missing steps in there that people don't talk about enough. And I just wanted to be one of those people who could help fill in the blanks, but not do it from a place of like shaming people, just doing it with compassion. When you went through that dark time and that dark period, what was your motivation to make it back to that level that you were once at? Because a lot of times people get crushed and it's hard to climb out of a dark hole. Even when you're up, you have down moments. So being down and then having down moments, how did Patrice make it out of those times? My defining moment in that whole period, because this went on for about 18 months. So sometimes when you tell a story in a two minute soundbite, people think you just went through something, jumped up and started something else. Mm -hmm. Like, no, this was going on for about 18 months, moving from place to place, a home foreclosed and then end up fleeing Southern California. And yes, I said fleeing like it wasn't a cute move. It was one of those in the middle of the night type of sell everything on Craigslist and get out of there. We ended up in Metairie, Louisiana, in this 600-square-foot apartment. And I was used to being one of those people, Kevin, who could figure it out. I was always Mm -hmm. the one people came to, to help them figure Mm -hmm. things out. Everything that I tried, I felt like the door kept getting slammed, the window slammed. I mean, any crevice, any opening that I thought I could kind of squeeze through, the door was slamming and I'd be back to square one. And I remember my husband took my daughter out for a walk and I found myself in the bathroom literally in the mirror, kind of just at my wits end, just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I was like, God, why? What have I done? I've been a good person. I treat people well. I wasn't one of those bad mortgage brokers. I was actually one of the good guys. I'm like, how did I get here when all I've tried to do was help people? 
And that started as a conversation with God in the mirror. And then before I knew it, I was on the bathroom floor, literally bawling and crying in a good old, ugly, mm. nasty, naughty nose cry, just bawling. God, why? And the kind that get you the headache? Them kind? The kinds that give you the headache? Yeah. Well, I was speaking the other day in San Diego and a young lady said, you mean the kind where your snot ends up on your forehead? I was like, well, girl, you've gone too far. I don't know if my snot was on my forehead. That's deep. But at the end of it, I heard the still small voice to say, get your Bible. And I got my Bible and it ended up taking me to Proverbs 17, 16. And that verse said, what good is money in the hands of a fool if they had no desire to seek wisdom? And that was like a light bulb moment for me. That was definitely one of those defining moments where I was like, man, this whole time I've been essentially chasing money. That is what I was raised to do. But I haven't necessarily been trying to seek wisdom and, and understanding that even though I had all the knowledge, I had a lot of information, education, degrees, certification, licenses, all this stuff, but I didn't have wisdom. And that's the application of all that stuff. Do you know when and where and how to apply it? And I realized that's what I was missing, essentially. And that was when it kind of all clicked for me. And I was thinking like, man, other people need to know this. So when you ask, how did I get out of that dark spot? To be honest, when I got off the floor and kind of slept on it, the next day, literally, I set up a free blogspot.com. And I was determined. I didn't even know what blogging really was for real. I see people like blog about their kids or something. And I was like, you know, I want to share these lessons. I want to use principles from the Bible and share little lessons about business and money. And I almost quit because I thought my mom and my husband would at least read it. But low key, they weren't even reading. I would ask them questions of my little free blogspot.com post and they weren't even really reading. And I was like, why am I doing this? No one's listening. And Mm -hmm. I stopped. I'd done it for a few months straight every week, and then I stopped. And then after about, I don't know how long it was, but it was a period, a short period of time, a man that I had never met before, never heard of before, sent me an email and said, hey, I was enjoying your blog. I hope you're okay. To this day, I wish I knew who he was because I think he is the person who saved the destiny of America's Money Maven. That one man reaching out and saying, hey, I was enjoying it. That was the dude that made me go, oh, wait, I don't have the luxury of stopping. I'm blessed with this information and this insight so that I could be a blessing. And Mm -hmm. from that point forward, it's not that it's been an easy journey, but Mm -hmm. every time it does get hard, I do remind myself that I'm blessed to be a blessing. So it's not about me. I have a responsibility to keep going, really, no matter how I feel. You can take a break, but stopping, I don't think that's optional. So now that you bounce back, and you're obviously in a different place. What is your mindset approach to personal finance? I've always believed that becoming wealthy had 100% nothing to do with money and Mm. 100% everything to do with mindset because that was the big thing that I learned. Even being on that floor and seeing that Bible verse, it was like, okay, I had money and I made a lot of money, but I didn't necessarily have the proper mindset. It's like, even now, when you see the entertainers or the athletes, celebrities, whoever, and you hear that they've made tens of millions of dollars, but now they're filing bankruptcy. And -hmm. people will be like, well, what's wrong with them? If I had that money, no, if you had that money, you'd probably make very similar mistakes because you can't just put more money in someone's hand and expect them to all of a sudden be great with money. It's like who you are with $10 in your wallet is going to be who you are with 10,000. You just have more money to make bigger mistakes with. That just is what it is. What are some things that we can do if we get $10,000, if we get $100,000, can you give us some tangible steps that we can take in order to ensure that we keep our money or are able to flip it? 
So one of the first things that I always say back to like this whole notion of the mindset, first of all, you have to understand who you are with money because you can have all of these tips or stats about how to find the right financial advisor or how to invest in the right product or this or that. But if you don't have the mind to actually follow through and be disciplined enough, you're not going to do it. To me, it's about first and foremost understanding what your mindset towards money really is. And a lot of us don't realize that how we interact with money is very much connected to our childhood and how we grew up seeing other people either interact with money or hearing what they said about money or some very specific incidents. One of my big things as a young person was credit card debt. When I walked onto my college campus and they were like, get this t-shirt for this application, I was like, t-shirt, visor, hat? play football, (laughs) give it all to me. But then after four years, I left there with $18,000 worth of credit card debt. Wow. Because I was a stupid kid. I was on the Dean's list at USC, you know, business school. It's not because I was stupid. They were very emotional decisions. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's what I saw my mom do. When I was a little kid, my mom had a wallet that looked like just a rainbow of plastic. So I thought that that's Mm. what it meant to be an adult. Use cash for what? You swipe. That looks grown and sexy. So when I was 17, 18, getting on this campus and they were offering me something with my own name on it, I was like, yeah, this is what grown people do. Not realizing I didn't understand what happened after you swiped. My mom Mm -hmm. definitely didn't talk about that. And so when I looked at why would I make such a decision, sometimes we're like, you ever set a, a New Year's resolution or something or a goal at the beginning of the year and you're like, man... And I know not you because you're so disciplined, but right, right, right. You are, like I'm sure your listeners can relate where you set this financial goal. I'm going to save more. I'm going to pay off debt. I'm going to start investing. I'm going to do this, do that. And then not even a month or two later, you back in the same habits. Absolutely. You know, December 31st, you're like, well, not this year, but maybe next year is going to be my year. Mm-hmm. That's because you haven't conditioned your mindset yet. Like you haven't recognized what is going on in my mind. What did I see? What did I experience that keeps me running in this circle instead of finally breaking the cycle? And I don't believe you can recondition what you're not going to recognize. You have to be willing to do the work and ask yourself some tough questions like, what did I see? It's not to make your parents bad or the people who you are modeling possibly. It's not to make them bad because they probably only did what they knew to do, but it is to recognize that you don't have to go in that same direction. You said something that I thought was good. We keep talking about circumstances and I look at circumstances through a different lens. I break the word into two parts, right? So you have circum, which is short for circumference, which means a circle, which is essentially a cycle. And then you have stance, which is take a stand. So if you take a stand in the cycle, then you stop things from happening. And that's like something that I came up with when I was young. And then I just really understood about life is that if you want things to change, you definitely have to change your mind state and break the habits of your environment or those who you have actually learned from. Like when you talked about the rainbow wallet from your mom, you're hitting it right on the head with that. But you have this mantra that I love, chase purpose, not money. You say it all throughout your podcast. What brought you to that realization that it's not about the money and that purpose is where everything will blossom from purpose? When I really discovered that there was a big difference between the definition for knowledge and wisdom, although people would use them interchangeably, it really got me on this path to not always taking words at surface value, like always wanting to dig a little deeper. And getting into personal finance in particular, when I start looking at the word wealth, people say, I want to be wealthy. 
But then I felt like we would only equate it to money or material possessions. And so when I started digging deeper and realized the 12th century definition of wealth was actually the condition of well-being. And because I used to coach people one-on-one with personal finance, I would realize that people weren't not saving or not paying off debt or not investing because they weren't smart enough to, or because they didn't make the money to, because my audience is usually people who are pretty high achievers. You know, it's not so much the income, they have the income, but then they come to me still feeling like, well, I have nothing to show for it though. So what's that about? And when we would really talk, Kevin, I would be like, you don't have a money problem. You have a people problem. You don't know how to say no to people. That's the problem. Or you don't have a people problem. You have a space problem. You are trying to like impress people so much by being in this 5,000 square foot home when really you don't need that for you and your one child. You know, it started to be so many other things. I'm like, it's not the money. It's you. And this goes back to the mindset, right? So when I started to get to that place and then in working with people, realizing how many folks were just unfulfilled. Even before I started to study financial psychology, I could see in the people that I was serving that there was a 70, 80% of the people I was serving, even though they were making good money, they were not working in their purpose. And therefore they were so unfulfilled that they were using all these other things to cope Mm -hmm. or they were using all these other things to fill the void that's created when you're not working or living in your purpose. And I started to encourage my audience or my clients to just do something that aligned with their purpose. Had nothing to do with money. Just do something that aligns with your purpose and let's track it. If you have to volunteer, maybe you can't get paid yet to walk in your purpose, but maybe you can volunteer on the weekends instead of going shopping or blowing money doing something else. Like, what if you volunteered in something that felt more purposeful for you? And Mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, you will start to see their fulfillment rise, which Mm -hmm. meant that they didn't have the same time to spend on foolishness. And then it started to help them set their priorities. And a natural byproduct was that their personal finances enhanced because they were more fulfilled with them than what other people might think of them by doing all these other things or trying to please everyone else. And then I have my own story with this. So when I moved from New Orleans and ended up in Atlanta, Georgia, I did the same thing. I was sleeping on my brother's couch in his two-bedroom condo, and he's a single dad with three kids living with him at the time, and I was on their couch with my baby, (laughs) and it was a lot going on in there. And so I couldn't really Mm -hmm. find a job to save my life. I had never had a real job. I had been pretty Mm -hmm. much an entrepreneur the whole time. And so Mm -hmm. this was the height of the recession. People are already being laid off, so jobs were Mm kind of hard to come by. And I made a decision that even if I couldn't get a job, that I would at the minimum volunteer. So one day, I started Googling financial education nonprofits. And Mm. there were about five or six around Atlanta that I could find that were in close proximity to where we lived. And I just started sending emails. Here's my name. I didn't have branding. I didn't have a website for real and all this stuff. I started sending emails. I was a real estate and mortgage broker. I used to teach personal finance classes. I taught Mm. people home buying this and that. I would love to volunteer. Not everyone answered. I think three people answered in two companies I ended up volunteering for. And in the midst of me volunteering for one in particular, I was like their star volunteer because I didn't have no job. So every time they said, (laughs) can someone come out? They would send out those emails. They're like, you're always the first to reply. Yeah, because I'm on this couch. So I just would volunteer and I met a lot of people, really start to build a name for myself. But there was this one, another defining moment. I was driving down Roswell Road. For those of you who are from Georgia, you know, from Atlanta. I know know Roswell Road. 
I'm driving down Roswell Road and actually headed to meet with Steve Harvey and his manager at the time. So I also was Steve Harvey's intern when I was 19 years old. Whole nother story. Totally crazy how all that happened. He knew I was in Atlanta and they were offering me a job, but the job had nothing to do with personal finance. It was totally unrelated. And I'm like, okay, I need a job. Like my husband is trying to get here. He was still in New Orleans. I was like, I got to make it happen. So I'm driving down the road to go accept this job, whatever it is. I don't care. I just need to check. And I get a phone call from the guy who was the president of the local market for that nonprofit that I was doing a lot of volunteering at. And he Mm -hmm. says, hey, you were the first person we thought of. We're opening this center and it's going to be about restoring financial dignity to the community. And we have this position where you would go out and educate the masses and teach courses. It sounded like it was made for me. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, when does this start? He said, the groundbreaking is in a couple months, but it's probably not going to be done for nine months. Now, here I am. I need work. So right. I was like, now, Laura, why would you do that? Why would he call me on the way to accept a job? Talking about mm-hmm. maybe nine months. I was like, okay, well, I don't know about that because I kind of need a job right now. I get in there. I have my talk with Steve and Rashawn, was his manager at the time. And we're talking and they're telling me about the position. And the more I'm listening to it, Kevin, I'm like, this don't sound like nothing I ever want to do ever. And out of nowhere, I said, I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. And when it came out of my mouth, I was like, you need this job. What are you doing? You can't tell your husband you didn't take this job. Steve was like, you broke, ain't you? Didn't you say you need? Yeah, like he was keeping it real. And I was like, "Uh, I am, but I really want to do something with finance. Long story short, they're like, we can call it finance. I'm like, so will I be able to do something with finance? And he's like, no. I said, well, what are we talking about? I turned the job down. That was so bold. Like when I think about that even now, and if somebody in my position then told me that they turned a job down as badly as I needed at the time, I might say you crazy. I don't know, especially from someone like that. But I turned the job down. Funny enough, my husband ended up taking the job. That was a whole nother thing. But I turned the job down and continued to volunteer and found other little odd jobs and freelance work to kind of supplement. Mm -hmm. And in 2013 or 14, I was invited on the show. That happened in 2010. In 2014, I was invited on the show to launch my second book. And it was supposed to be a one-time interview. And that turned into four years of me having a weekly segment on the Steve Harvey Morning Show. And now millions of people have heard my testimony, but also experienced whatever wisdom I have to share. And I say that to say that's an example of chasing purpose, not money. Absolutely. It wasn't easy, but it was the best route I could have taken. So you keep talking about something that I feel like matters. And I'm hearing it from you. I would love to hear your husband's insight on it as well. But you keep talking about the power of your relationship with your husband, especially during those dark times. What are some of the things that you both did in order to make sure that your relationship stayed strong and that you were able to build as a unit? We owned our business together. And so a lot of the Mm -hmm. couples that we knew who also owned real estate offices or mortgage brokerages or whatever, I think 90 percent of them did break up either during that time or shortly thereafter. It actually made us closer I don't know. For us going in, it was like survival mode. And we were like, we all we got. So we used to create little mantras. We had matching Range Rovers when it was all popping. And so when everything started hitting the fan and I couldn't even put like $3 of gas in that thing, Kevin, I was like, so can you guys come get these? Or how do we drop these back off? They're like, no, ma'am, you need to pay your bill. No, no, no. How do I drop it off to you? (laughs) Like that's where we were. 
But then we developed this mantra where whenever we saw Range Rovers, we would be like, been there, done that on the way back. And we would just say things that would just pump us up. We created mantras. We created affirmations and declarations that we both knew. We had cold words. So if somebody was getting bent out of shape or stuff wasn't happening, we would just drop a cold word and it's like it would automatically ease the other. That's pretty much still who we are now. We got really passionate about having now what we call them are Sunday Night Lives. On Sunday nights, two Sundays a month, we go to my husband's office and we pick one area of our business and we just drill in. Here's where we are. Here's the brainstorm. Here's what the goals are. What can we do to keep enhancing and keep turning that over? How do we need to improve this? And so we've just always been in it together. But I think the foundation of that is he was my best friend before he was my boyfriend. So he's my friend friend. Even when he gets on my nerves or I get on his nerves, that's my friend. And we also, our main mantra is no plan B. So you're also a mother and him a father. And you do great, in my opinion. Of course, I'm from the outside looking in. But I see you taking your daughter to events. I see you guys are going to the gym and are always together. How are you balancing all of this with so much happening? You're an entrepreneur. You're on the road, speaking here, there, everywhere. How? I learned a long time ago to not try to balance. I don't think I've ever been really great at balance, but I've tried Mm -hmm. to create harmony as much as possible, Mm -hmm. meaning it's important for my husband and I to be present in as much as we can be present in, in each other's businesses or lives or whatever. And the same for my daughter. It was always important for me as a woman with a little girl, and I think in particular, a a brown baby girl, to make sure that when I was gone, she knew where I was and she knew what I was doing. And she had an understanding of the impact Mm -hmm. and that it's possible that she would never have to grow up and make a choice between, am I going to be a mother or am I going to be a businesswoman or a professional or whatever it is she wants to do. And even now she's a volleyball player She's in sixth grade. She's just getting into sports. She'll get stressed or, you know, be like, mom, I have all this homework and I have this and I have that and I practice in this game tomorrow. And she's like, but I know I'm powerful enough to wear many hats. <laughs> she's, yes. she's like a 30 year old, but she's like, you know, I know I'm capable, but I just need to vent. I'm like, girl, you can vent because some days I need to vent and you listen to me. So I appreciate it. But Mm. the main thing is that she knows it's possible. And I've made a valiant effort in particular. She checked me when she was about six or seven years old because I used to have a habit of having my phone out at dinner or when I picked her up from school and I'm still trying to answer emails or scroll through social media or whatever. And she told me a story one day and I really didn't hear the story. You know how little kids stories, they just go in circles. She was telling me a story and I said, oh, that's good. And she said, that was not a good story, mom. That was a bad story. You weren't listening. And I started to say, no, I heard you. And then that was the reminder. But there's a difference between hearing and listening. I heard words coming out of her mouth. I did not listen to her. I apologized to her. And I think that's where as parents, we think that because we're the parent, we get to just, no, she deserved to be listened to. She waited all day to tell me this story. And how would I feel if someone else was doing that to me? And so we just really try to respect each other. When I'm in her presence, I'm in her presence. What are some of your keys, Patrice's keys to being aware of self? Because it sounds like you're very aware and very in tune with what's going on with you and what's going on with those in your family. So this is great emotional intelligence that you have, Patrice. How do you make sure that you're emotionally invested and intelligent and aware? So one of the pillars we talk about at Redefining Wealth is the faith pillar. And for me, it's really, really important 
to start my day with some type of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So around 5 or 6 a.m. just depends on what the day looks like. I usually Mm -hmm. take 45 minutes to an hour or so to be still. Sometimes that looks like just meditation or it could be prayer, journaling, doing a devotional of some kind. But I love to really do devotionals and stuff like that that make me ask myself questions, questions that I may not ordinarily ask Mm -hmm. or read things that are not things that I would normally come across in the course of my day. Because it makes me, and I'm really intentional about answering the questions and being honest with myself. I'm a feelings person. I always tell people I'm spirit-led. If it don't feel right, it's probably not right. And I used to be one of those people who would ignore that. And folks call it women's intuition or whatever. It's definitely an internal compass there that when things don't feel right, I'm not one of those people to try to push it under, shove it under a rug. I'd rather just talk about it and have a real conversation and try to get to some type of resolve. And whether that conversation is a difficult one I have to have with a loved one, a friend or family member, or if it's Mm -hmm. a difficult conversation I have to have with myself. Mm -hmm. But I've learned to trust me because I only get one shot at this. No dress rehearsals. No dress rehearsals. Wow. Create Your Life family. I hope that you are really enjoying this episode. I wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsors and let you know that our sponsors are giving special offers just for you. If you are a fellow busy podcaster who just wants to record and spend the rest of your time doing what you love, like working out at the gym with family and friends or traveling, use code CYLS for a discount on services when you go to podcastlaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. And without further ado, let's get back to the show. You started your podcast in 2017, the Redefining Wealth Podcast, and it is immensely successful. What would you say have been some of the keys to its growth and to you building community around it? Because you have a lot of purpose chasers. We do have a lot of purpose chasers now and growing. I think the largest key has been being unapologetic about my testimony. I'm really clear in my audience that I'm not some type of guru. I'm not trying to be like on some follow the leader. I'm like, girl, hold my hand, you know, (laughs) like we're in this together. We're all trying to figure it out. And like I said, in the very beginning, I'm blessed to be a blessing. So anytime I come across something, even if I'm in still in the midst of learning it or in the midst of experiencing something, I think what my audience appreciates is that I'll share. I'm going to share what I'm learning now. If that perspective changes, I don't have a problem with saying, okay, my opinion on this has changed. I've been informed or learned something new or whatever, but we're on a journey together. And I think that people appreciate that authenticity of like, let's do it together. I don't really hold back and, you know, in any areas. I share a lot of things that I don't even know if people in my family really know about me. When I crack the mic, I feel a freedom and a peace in just being myself. And yeah, it's very transparent. I mean, I've listened to your podcast. I've learned things about you that I didn't learn in our first few conversations. And then also I'm just like, wow, you know, she's so open and beautiful person. I'm happy to meet you and happy to be able to have the opportunity to listen to your show. For you, what would you say has been the biggest challenge that you've needed to overcome in order to be who you are today? The biggest challenge that I've had to overcome was being okay with what I look like in a couple different ways. And this is really interesting. I found this fascinating. So on one hand, I grew up feeling very ugly because 
my family's Belizean and a little Guatemalan in there. And so I'm like on the darker end of my family and you know, colorism is real. And mm-hmm. so because I'm not fair skinned like my brothers or others in my family, I would always be the blackie, the darkie. Oh, you got big lips, your eyes too big, you're too this. And then going to school, too tall. I was taller than all the boys. You know, I'm 5'10 without shoes on. So I'm taller than all the boys, super thin, like all this stuff. Everything that people essentially kind of pay for now, like real talk, is what I was as a kid. But that wasn't popping in the 80s and 90s, right? As much as I knew I was a smart kid, I also had a lot of low self-esteem just in terms of my looks. So I always lean towards just being, I'm the smart one or I'm the athletic one or whatever, not the cute girl in the group, right? I was 25 before I could look in the mirror and not cringe and wish I looked like someone else or wish that something on my body was different, mostly on my face. Like I was the kid that would put a clothespin on my nose or suck my lips in or scrub my skin in the bathtub in hot water. Like you name it. Any of those things, Mm -hmm. irrational things that a little kid would do is what I did. And so my Mm -hmm. husband, he was my boyfriend at the time around 22 is the one who encouraged me to go to therapy. Going to sit on somebody's couch, I think saved my destiny because three years of therapy and learning to forgive people mostly the people who were in my family, the people who were supposed to love and protect you are the ones who really did me in the worst. Mm. And learning to forgive them, people who would never say I'm sorry and understanding that hurt people really do hurt people. And they got that from somewhere that wasn't just about me. And just learning so much about my family and history and myself kind of freed me. And I was, that's one of the pillars at Redefining Wealth is about being mentally fit. So I don't believe that I could be who I am today had I not gotten help for the childhood trauma that I experienced. But then the funny thing is on the flip side, now that I'm a speaker and I do a lot of media and do all this stuff is that it's now a barrier I have to overcome because some rooms I walk in and people will automatically make a judgment about what I think about me, which is so Mm -hmm. far from the truth. Like if you knew how I grew up or what I spent years telling myself about what I look like, you would not sit here and have this conversation or whatever you think of me, right? So now I don't know. I've experienced it on both sides. It's really weird, but that has been one of the biggest things I've had to overcome. And so I'm very aware that in certain circumstances, especially keeping it real, if I'm at a women's conference or something like that, I know that I have to immediately speak up and make sure that people have some awareness of my background, because I think it helps people have a greater appreciation without making judgments and assumptions. So two things that you're saying, I think sometimes people project what you just said about countering projections of people thinking that you're arrogant or that you think you're all that is being able to start the conversation in order to make sure that things are amicable. Something I'm going to share with my audience that a lot of people don't know is that I actually grew up and I never thought that I was attractive until I was probably like 26, maybe 27. Like, I never thought that I was attractive. I wear a hat, like I wear all black all the time. Like people don't even realize, like I just, me trying to be the prettiest guy or you know what I mean, the most handsomest guy, I've never looked at myself as that way. I've always looked at myself like, I just want to do whatever I want to do. Like that's Mm -hmm. always been my thing, you know, like I'm a clothing designer by trade. I never considered myself to be handsome. And it was just something that I never really thought about either. And not until I got older did I realize that. And then those feelings of self-worth, and like you said, you know, therapy and working through it and stuff like that. Something that I still am consciously working on is having that sense of self-worth and being aware of who I am. But aesthetically, 
I put my right. value in who I am and my character. And that's what I'm saying. That's the thing that always gets me. If you have a conversation with me, you're going to know instantly what I'm passionate about and how much I have a heart for people. But when you Mm -hmm. don't give people that opportunity and you make a judgment or assumption before that, you just get it wrong. Like so often it's just wrong. And then when I do share the backstory about that, that's I usually have women come up to me like, oh my God, I didn't expect you to be this nice. Like where did you get that from? Because like I grew up in foster care my entire life. So I was treated like a third class citizen. So none of this was not even an option. I was just in survival mode growing up. So it just, I have time to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to be the most handsome. It's like, look, dude, you need to make it. But for you, Patrice, on your podcast, you've talked about something that I think is really, really important. You said that you dealt with online bullying and things like that. So for you with negative feedback as you were rising, what did you think when you first saw it? Was it public? Was it private? How do you deal with it? And would you say that you were prepared for it? The first experience I had was writing an article for HelloBeautiful.com years ago. This might have been like 2010. And it went viral, which means, of course, you get a lot of feedback on both sides. That was the first time I had complete strangers pick me apart online. Like, who does she think she is? She don't love herself. She don't love Black people. She doesn't love this. She doesn't love that. And because my heart is to serve and to help people, when it first happened, I was like, oh my gosh, no, they don't understand. But that's actually how I got into radio. There was a radio show in Texas who picked up the article and they were talking about it. And people were tweeting me saying, oh, they're talking about you. But I couldn't find it. Obviously, I was in Atlanta. But then I realized that they were talking about me in a very negative light. So I tried to go on and defend myself, did horribly because I had never been on radio. But that was the catalyst Mm. for me ending up on radio. So I've learned, first of all, everyone's just not going to agree with you. And I pray every day that the people who are supposed to be moved by my words are moved, that the people whose heart I'm supposed to penetrate, that that's what happens and that the others go and find whatever resource they need. And that's why we have choices. That's why there's tens of thousands of podcasts and so many different TV programs and so many options in every genre of anything you want to do because everyone is not a fit for everyone. So it took me several months of having those types of experiences where I felt like I'd have to defend myself to accept the fact that I'm not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And that's okay. I didn't come to say, I'm not Jesus. So I definitely didn't come to save the world. You know, I came to save my thin slice of the pie and whoever I'm supposed (laughs) to help, I'm here to help. And so I've accepted that and Mm -hmm. made amends for that. But what I've experienced most recently was cyberbullying. I believe that it's someone that I know, and I believe it's an ex-friend. And I'm open with saying this because I know people go through this too. And it's an ex-friend who has taken bits and pieces of what they do know to be true about my life and just totally twisted it and misrepresented it to make me look bad. I can't think of any other real reason. And I honestly believe, Kevin, that sometimes people become so annoyed by your anointing that they can't find anything else to do but to try to make your life a living hell. And so I've had everything from my sites being hacked my Skype accounts being hacked, people trying to get in my cell phone account. I mean, it's just been one thing after another. But in the midst of all of that, I created Redefining Wealth last year. I'm writing my fifth book. In the midst of all of that, I continue to speak every other week and travel extensively and get brand partnerships and do what I do. And the biggest thing for me is that no matter what people think, no matter what they say, no matter what the what ifs are that they try to present, Mm -hmm. I know what is, 
I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know what I'm called to do. I know what my purpose is. And as long as I stand in that truth, I don't have to prove anything else to anyone else. I think I have overcome that idea that, oh my gosh, what if someone in my audience believes this fake site or this fake thing or this whatever? And I'm like, my audience knows me. So if you believe that, that's on you. But I know what is. I can't spend my life defending myself. I have too many people to serve. So if you were doing what you're doing now, what we're doing, is there any career or hobby that you've always wanted to pursue? I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I've been saying that since I was like in sixth grade entrepreneur. Once I understood and learned what the word is, I didn't imagine becoming America's money maven by any stretch of the imagination, but I did know whatever it was, I'd have to work for myself because I wanted the freedom and flexibility to be there for my family, which is what I didn't have growing up. If someone could come into your business today and help you with one thing, the biggest challenge, what would that thing be? Facebook ads. I know that I'm good at what I do, but I've accepted that I am talent. I'm a great content creator, but the technical stuff in the ins and outs of social media drives me nuts. I don't get it. The thing is, I realized too, Kevin, that's why you hire people to do what they do. Like someone else loves this and they were born to do it and you have to let them do it. You cannot Google things to death and think that you're going to force yourself to be a professional in that area. Like that is not what's up. And I've learned No, you need to let people come in and do what they do. I'm all right on Instagram, but it still is like baffling to me. Uh, Yeah, because you know what's funny? They say if somebody can do 80% as good as you can, then let them do it. Miss Washington, my next question for you is, can you swim? I just learned to swim last year. I have to ask that question because we're about to jump into the dolphin tank. Okay. This is rapid fire. You know, are you ready? Yes. Okay. What are your goal setting methods and how do you make sure that you are growing each year? I set goals quarterly, not annually. I believe that the more time you give yourself to do something is the time it's going to take. So some things don't Mm -hmm. require all year. I set 90-day goals. And then in each pillar of my life, based on the six pillars of wealth and redefining wealth, and then in each pillar, I set three types of goals, what I call a safe goal, a stretch goal, and a support goal. And the safe goal is something that I know I need to do. I know I can do it. It's within my grasp. I just haven't made the time to do it. The stretch goal is something that's so big, it's going to take God's help to really help me figure out what to do, but I want to dream big and get it done. And the Mm -hmm. support goal is any goal where I need to hire someone else or ask for help because that was always a big barrier for me, knowing how to Mm -hmm. ask for help. So now I make it a point to get support in every pillar of my life. What was holding you back from creating your best life? Nothing. Top tech that you're using to make your business and life run smoothly. Can I say Google Calendar or is that too lame? Because I will be nothing without a calendar. (laughs) I set up my calendar by pillars. So you'll see on my calendar, first thing in the morning, you'll see faith and then whatever else fit, whatever I'm going to do to work out, work, Mm -hmm. people, everything is literally blocked. Favorite quote or model that you live by? I am who I say I am. Oh, you know, it's funny. I have a quote that I made up that I give out to, especially when I'm doing youth speaking. It is, I am the brand I say I am. Awesome. Favorite or most impactful book that you've read? T. Harv Ecker, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. Okay. And who said the quote that you said? So curious. I just started saying it years ago. Three jewels that you would tell someone looking to create their best life. Number one, chase purpose, not money. Number two, you have the power to define wealth as whatever you see it as. And number three, 
make it a point to create relationships that matter because everything that you need, if it's not within your reach, you know someone who can get you there. But don't only reach out when you need something. Reach out because you want to build relationships. So what's next for you? A big what's next is actually writing my fifth book, which is based on the pillars of the Redefining Wealth podcast. And I'm excited to get a tool into people's hands that is very specific and practical in terms of daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly rituals that you can put in place to improve your life in each one of those pillars. And what's the best way for us to keep in contact with you? PatriceWashington.com is where all things Patrice Washington live. And I believe it or not, though, Instagram is my favorite of the social media platforms. When people hit me up on Instagram, I'm really good about getting back to them. So I would say Instagram, Seek Wisdom PCW. Your podcast, where can we find your podcast at? Tell us the name one more time, please. The podcast is Redefining Wealth, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts, now on Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and of course at PatriceWashington.com. And so Patrice... <laughs> I'm laughing because you do this interviewing for a living also. Uh, we have now reached the point in the interview where it's time for the turnaround and create your life family. Y'all know what that means. If she gets to ask me any three questions that she wants. I don't know what they are, but I have to answer. Patrice, I am all yours. I only have one request. Okay. Please be gentle. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I was trying, I'm like, my mind is churning. I'm like, okay. Well, one question I have for you is you were profiled by Black Enterprise. What were you profiled about and how did that happen? I was nominated actually by a journalist, Selena Hill, who's an amazing, hardworking young lady here in New York. And so I was actually profiled as one of the modern men of distinction for my commitment and work with in the community and especially for youth. And so I had the opportunity to tell my story and you know, talk about you know, growing up in foster care and graduating college debt free and creating an online course that teaches parents and students how to graduate college free and stuff. So it was an honor to be honored. You know, like you said, a blessing to be a blessing. That's dope. I really liked uh, seeing your profile there. Black Enterprise was one of the first people that gave me a writing spot back in the day. Very nice. So as a man who grew up in foster care, I know that Tiffany Haddish talks openly about also growing up in foster care and people kind of see her as, I don't want to say poster child. I don't think that's the right word, but people keep referring to that. How do you feel about her highlighting foster care or the accomplishments or what can come of someone who's been through foster care? Because you said yourself that you grew up feeling like a third class citizen, if you will. So do you think that she's doing a good job with her platform of bringing awareness to foster care? I'll be 100% honest. I've heard of Tiffany. I'm aware that she was in foster care. I think that anybody who's been able to reach a level of success um, after experiencing foster care, I don't know her story personally, mm-hmm. but if she's bringing awareness to it, then I, I'm happy. You know, anybody who's been in foster care, I'll call her my foster care brother or sister because it's an experience like no other. You're essentially on the outside of the inside of someone's family. Wow. And so like for me, like I went in when I was nine months. So I always knew that these people weren't my people. And no matter what home I moved to, you know what I mean? That experience. And I think that she's reached that level of success and she is able to bring awareness to it and be a pillar of life for someone else then more power to her. I mean, there's so many of us. Like Nelson Mandela was a foster kid, essentially. Aristotle, Pitbull, the rapper, Jamie Foxx, essentially did kinship care. I believe Keisha Cole was in in care for a while. Like there's a lot of us. Tiffany, you know, with definitely the level of success that she's been obtaining, 
as of recent for her to make that something that she's passionate about and feels like raising awareness about, you know, kudos to her. So I want your advice. This last question is personal for me. So I've talked openly on my podcast about experiencing secondary infertility. So people Mm -hmm. don't realize that just because you have one kid, that doesn't mean it's so easy to get pregnant with the next. I had a son who passed away the year before my daughter was born. And then my daughter was born 10 weeks prematurely after me being in the hospital on bed rest for 10 weeks. And then since her, I've never been pregnant again. And so Mm -hmm. she's 11 years old now and basically acts 35. So we're peers. And I'm realizing every day that I don't have a baby. I'm still relatively young. Like I still would like to nurture someone and have another child. And so most recently, my husband and I have been talking about adoption. When I say that to people, they always come with all these like, okay, it got to be a baby. You need to make sure this, it needs to be that. But there was a man who came and spoke in my church. He was a bishop from Possum Trot, Texas. There was a 2020 special on him. And Mm -hmm. he talked about leading his church on this cause to eradicate the foster care system in their town. And so the church people adopted everyone out of the foster care system. It was like 40 something kids in that church literally led the charge to get all the kids out of foster care. And so Mm -hmm. someone who is looking to possibly do that, what advice would you give to me or to my family? I don't necessarily want a baby. My life is not really conducive to changing diapers at this point and teaching folk how to walk. I want an older child because I understand that older children are the ones who kind of get bounced around from place to place to place. Do you have any advice? Actually, I have a lot. Some that might be too long for this interview. The first thing I would say is good that you can acknowledge and that you're aware of what you do have time for. That's important and that's responsible. This is the biggest thing. It's something that I experienced and that a lot of kids experience. There's no such thing as failed adoptions where people adopt the child. So when you adopt the child, the child is essentially supposed to be yours forever, right? Mm-hmm. And I say that in a possessive way, but just meaning that they're a part of your family and they yeah. take your last name, et cetera. People will send kids back to the system and it's happened. I remember I was talking to somebody the other day and they were like, some kid had like 40 failed adoptions or something, which I find hard to believe, but I wasn't a, I don't know the facts, but here's the thing. If you get an older child, then you have to be aware that this child, though your house may be perfect, there's a lot of emotional baggage and experiences that you're going to need to work through. And that's the difference with getting a teenager or a 12 year old or something like that versus having a baby where you actually start them out and you train them up in the right way or in a way that is conducive to how you would like your household to be ran. So this kid is 14 years old, he or she, and they've been in 20 different homes. You have to think about their experiences and you need to take that into account because there's going to be rebelliousness, right? Because they're not used to your system. And I'm sure you and your husband are going to come with structure and your daughter's wise. But I think that love can overcome, but you're also going to need to be able to walk this person back through different experiences. Like for me, as a man, like I'm really big into personal work, but as I've gotten older, I've had to go back and read different psychology books and really sit and analyze why certain things affect me, why I have certain behaviors. And so Putting a child or a person in a healthy situation might not be the easiest at first, but they can grow into this person. So I think that that's the most important thing to understand is is that you may be perfect and it's your first adoption and your first time having a kid in, but it might be their 20th. And so you need to be able to meet that and sit through that because at the end of the day, we're looking for love. 
And sometimes, unfortunately, people get loved in the wrong types of ways, whether that be through emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. It can happen in so many different ways. And so an amazing person like yourself and your husband and obviously your daughter, it's going to be work, essentially. It's going to be work. But at the same time, I never forget those who have helped me to become who I am because a lot of my nurturing and self-understanding and real investment came outside of my foster homes. But I was actively seeking it out. I was seeking wisdom and purpose. I was seeking that. And some kids, they don't know how. And then just even being able to communicate and use your words could be a challenge because in care, you don't have a voice. Your social workers and your foster parents are usually the ones making the decisions for you. And then when you're trying to make a decision, you usually don't have a voice. And then in that, you're trying to figure it out and you don't have the wisdom or the knowledge in order to be able to make a responsible decision for yourself a lot of the times. And so then it also becomes a trusting. Who can you trust? If I went into 10 homes and they all said that they love me and I'd be here for the rest of my life and I'm going to my 12th or my 11th right now, then I'm not trusting you. You might be the nicest lady ever. You might be rich. It doesn't matter. Like You have to build trust and rapport with someone. This is good. Yeah, like it's real. Like we can talk about it in depth. I'll be happy to answer any questions that you all have. But I'll also point out as well that I was not adopted. I grew up in foster care and I emancipated. So being adopted is more stable. I believe I know a couple of people who were adopted. So I can point you in the direction for that. And I have a lot of friends who work in the foster care with the child welfare industry. You could talk to you about that as well. And one of the biggest things is going to be for me that I always felt was treat this particular child equally. I think one of my foster dads came to one of my games. It never came to anything. I get 3.5 GPA, nothing. But the kid get a 3.0, 2.3, celebrate them. I remember one time I broke my ankle. They were mad that they had to come and get me from my basketball game and take me to the hospital. Then they used to make me walk to school. I mean, I used to have to walk to the bus on my crutches in the rain, and then they would drive their kids to school. So it's just treating people equally. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. Like, I remember the people who treated me like a person when I was growing up. I remember them. You never know, and you have to learn, and you're going to have to help this person to be able to learn how to articulate their feelings if it's an older child. Yeah. So like you said, you know, the intuition and things like that. We'll definitely talk more. Well, Patrice, I want to thank so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. This was good. Well, Create Your Life family, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and rate and review us. This helps us build the community and building the community is what we are all about right now so that we can deliver as much value as possible to you. So until next time, create your life and feed your ambition. This episode was brought to you by PodcastLaundry.com. I love Podcast Laundry. It provides a real solution to free up my time. And time is the only resource that we cannot get back. Podcast Laundry was created with love to help other fellow busy podcasters free up time so that they could do more of what they love, whether that's traveling, time with friends and family, or working on other ventures. If you want to free up your time, then have Podcast Laundry do the dirty work of note-taking, graphic creation, editing, show tagging, and uploading for you. Go to PodcastLaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. And remember to use code CYLS. That's PodcastLaundry.com or call 347-871-8273.